0: we open God's word now, we'll turn to Luke chapter 24, where we consider the, the subject of that second stanza, we just saying, faithful ones, communing toward the close of day, desolate and weary, met you in the way. That's um, speaking of this passage in Luke chapter 24, in the evening of the very first Easter, the very first Lord's Day, just hours after Christ had risen, we read the first part of this chapter in our call to worship and we'll begin reading now at verse 13. It's page 1051, I believe, in your pew Bibles. It says, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. A man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. That the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight They said to each other, Did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them, and the breaking of bread. And if you look down to verse uh, 44, read also verses 44 through 47. On that same evening, uh, Jesus appeared again and said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Focus mainly on verses 25 through uh, 35, along with those four verses that we just read. And we'll do so in connection with Lord's Day 25, pages 882 and 883. In the back of your hymnals, if you recall Lord's Day's 23. And 24 speak of of justification by faith alone after going through the articles of the Apostles Creed. It it then basically asks what what good does it do us to believe all this and uh, tells us how by believing these gospel truths we are justified uh, by grace alone through faith alone. So now it asks in Lord's Day 25 how it is that the Lord works this faith in our hearts and so we'll um, read responsively, questions 65 through 68. It is by faith alone that we share in Christ and all his benefits. Where then does that faith come from? The Holy Spirit works it in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it by the use of the holy sacraments. What are sacraments? Sacraments. Sacraments are visible, holy signs and seals. They were instituted by God so that by our use of them, he might make us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel and seal that promise. And this is God's gospel promise. He grants us forgiveness of sins and eternal life by grace. Because of Christ's one sacrifice accomplished on the cross. Are both the Word and the sacraments then intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? Yes, indeed. The Holy Spirit teaches us in the gospel and confirms by the holy sacraments that our entire salvation. Rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. And finally, question 68 How many sacraments did Christ institute in the New Testament? Two, holy baptism and the holy supper. It was, I think, five years ago yesterday, the very first time that I came and preached at Emmanuel. When I did, I preached on this same text and Lord's Day under the theme The Spirit of Christ Produces Faith in Christ Through the Christ-Centered Word and Christ-Centered Sacraments. We see in Lord's Day 25 an emphasis on these ordinary means. These ordinary means of Word and Sacrament that by the grace of God do extraordinary things. Considered a number of of, uh, marvelous works of God, miracles in these last few days, thinking about even even the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The work that the Lord does by his spirit in the heart of of one who was formerly dead is is, um, equally miraculous. It is an extraordinary work of God. And yet we confess that he does this extraordinary work through very ordinary means. And as we look at Luke chapter 24, the passage that we read just just a moment ago, we see this passage, a sort of paradigmatic scene that that sets the pattern for the church devoting herself to these ordinary Christ-centered means that that both produce and confirm this faith in our hearts. Question 65 that we just read a moment ago, it says, where does faith come from? And the answer that we just read together is that the Spirit of Christ works it in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it by the use of the Holy Sacraments. And is that not what we see Christ doing in Luke 24? I just want to take these um, two two things, the the preaching of the Holy Gospel and the use of the Holy Sacraments as our outline, and, and think about these two things from Luke 24 before then considering just for a little bit what they mean for the shape of our ministry and how it is that we respond to these things. Let's look at me first at the preaching of the Holy Gospel. Maybe you look at Luke 24 and you, you ask, um, where do we see this passage, the preaching of the Gospel? I think we see it in verses 25 through 27. And again in, in verses 44 through 47. See, in verse 26, uh, Jesus gives this sort of theme statement that it was necessary for the Christ to first suffer and then enter into glory. And then in verse 27, he takes up as his text to, to exposit that theme Moses and all the prophets. Moses, meaning the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and all the prophets, meaning both the former prophets of Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and, and then the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the twelve minor prophets. In other words, the whole Old Testament. This this was Jesus' text. Verse forty four adds the Psalms. So in other words, he he shows them, or or verse 32, he opens for them, he exposits for them from each of these portions of the Scripture how it was necessary for the Messiah to first suffer and then enter into glory. Jesus shows this from every portion of the Old Testament. Of course, it doesn't tell us everything that he said, But we can surmise that that many of the passages that Luke in in his very gospel or in the book of Acts, which Luke also writes, many of those passages where Luke shows us how how Christ is the fulfillment of it might have been among those passages that Christ directed those two disciples to on Rodumaeus, Showing them how all throughout the Old Testament is this pattern of God's Messiah suffering and then entering into glory beginning with that first gospel promise where it says in Genesis 3.15 that he would crush the serpent's head through having his heel bruised. J.C. Ryle asked the question, in what way did our Lord show the things concerning himself in every part of the Old Testament? He says the answer is short and simple. Christ was the substance of every Old Testament sacrifice ordained in the law of Moses. He was the true deliverer and king of whom all the judges and deliverers in Jewish history were types. He was the prophet greater than Moses whose glorious advent filled the pages of the prophets. He was the true seed of the woman who would bruise the serpent's head, the true seed in whom all the nations would be blessed, the true Shiloh to whom the people would be gathered, the the true scapegoat, the true bronze serpent, the true lamb to which every daily offering pointed, the true high priest, whom every descendant of Aaron was a figure. These things, or something like them, we need not doubt, were among the things that our Lord expounded on the way to Emmaus. And then Ryle says, Let it be a settled principle in our minds in reading the Bible that Christ is the central sun of the whole book, around which everything else has its orbit. He says, so long as we keep him in view, we shall never greatly err in our search for spiritual knowledge. But once losing sight of him, shall find the whole Bible dark and full of difficulty. It says, the key of Bible knowledge is Jesus Christ. That's the point that Jesus made in the first Lord's Day sermon of the new age. The first Sunday liturgy after the resurrection took up as its text the whole Old Testament on this seven-mile sermon from Jerusalem to Emmaus where Jesus showed them that all of it points to him. So the Psalms he makes that point in verse 44. The same point that Peter made on the day of Pentecost where he preached that same psalm that we heard this morning and, and showed that its true meaning is in David's typological significance in pointing ahead to the suffering king who would come from his line and be raised from death. One writer says, We, we may be sure that Psalm 16 was among the psalms interpreted to the church by the risen Christ, for this was the first psalm the church exegeted in its very first sermon after the Spirit came upon her in power. Jesus likely opened up for them many of the same psalms we've been looking at. Psalm 2. Psalm 8, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, and showed how we miss the point if we rush to to merely read ourselves into them without first seeing their prophetic significance in pointing ahead to Jesus. All of the Old Testament is about him. All of the Bible is about him. Arthur Just says, as you read Luke 24, that the reader is struck with the realization that the Old Testament scriptures provide a prophetic witness that is in its totality Christological, centered on Christ. That's the point that Jesus makes in the first sermon on the first Lord's Day of the new creation, that all of scripture points to him, which is the same thing that we confess in in Lord's Day 6, for example. We confess that God begins to reveal the holy gospel already in paradise, later proclaims it by the the holy patriarchs and prophets, and then foreshadows it in the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law, finally fulfilling it, that is, uh, bringing all of this to its completion through his own beloved son. So we confess in Lord's Day 6, and now Lord's Day 25 says that it's through preaching this holy gospel from Genesis to Revelation that the Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts. And it's especially question 67 that says, the preaching of the word is meant to focus our faith on the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It's making the same point as Luke 24 that if all of the scriptures are about him, then all preaching must proclaim him. The preaching of the word is meant to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation. As we just heard this morning, as we heard on Good Friday. And our catechism is reminding us that it's this ordinary preaching of this same news that we already know that God continues to use Lord's Day after Lord's Day, week after week, to work faith in our hearts. To cause us to see anew the glory of His Son like a a beautiful diamond as we we consider it from from all the various angles that the Old Testament Scriptures uh, show us this beautiful multifaceted diamond that that the Lord every week causes us to see the glory of his son, which Christ himself here shows these two languishing disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's interesting, Delroth Davis makes the point that um, though they're they're suffering here in Luke 24, though they're sad, though they are, are languishing, and though Jesus could have simply revealed himself right away to be who he is, Although he could have ministered to them through the miraculous, through the spectacular, instead he ministers his grace to them through the ordinary means of expositing the word. He takes them to the source and, and walks them through a process of biblical interpretation. Preaching and good biblical theology are what they needed in the midst of their sadness to see Christ revealed in his word. Which, by their own testimony, verse 32, makes their hearts burn within them. Hearing Christ preach to them from all the scriptures fills them with joy. It was the very thing that they needed. It is the very thing that we need. That's what Lord's Day 25 is reminding us. That this first Easter evening, this, this first Lord's Day sermon, is in some sense paradigmatic for what every Sunday sermon should look like as it focuses our faith. On Christ, the seed of the woman who had crushed the head of the serpent, the prophet like Moses who would not only proclaim the word of God to his people, but like Moses, would be rejected by his people. The Passover lamb, blameless, yet given for his people, the suffering servant, the son of David, the, the subject of the Psalms who would then enter into glory as so many of the Psalms individually speak of and as the whole story of the Psalter shows us. Jesus is the point of the scriptures. Which means very simply that that A, we must preach Jesus from all of them. And B, if we miss Jesus in them, then we haven't really understood them. Tim Keller would say we haven't really preached until we've gotten to Christ. If it's by the preaching of the Holy Gospel that the Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts, then we must preach that Holy Gospel. And Some churches have actually made it their practice to, to put a little plaque on the pulpit with the words of John 12, 21, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. It's a reminder to the one preaching that until a passage has been understood and applied in light of the Bible's greater story, it hasn't been understood or applied. As we must preach Christ, as we see in verses 25 through 27. As you notice, though, that the passage doesn't end there. But it tells us that after Jesus had interpreted for them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, that by the end of that seven-mile sermon, they had come to the village of Emmaus, and it says that Jesus acted as if he were going further. I think this is probably a little something like uh, Jesus' interaction with the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15, where he He doesn't at first respond to her. He's he's trying to draw something out of her. Something like that is going on here where where Jesus acts as if he's going further perhaps to see if they would entreat him wishing to hear more, which they do. So Jesus, glad that they wish to hear more from him, he stays with them and becomes their guest. But then by the time we get to verse 30, only, only one verse has passed and now the guest has become the host in a meal that's presented to us in verse 30, the same language as the Last Supper in Luke 22. It speaks of Jesus as the host, taking, blessing, breaking, giving. This meal is called in verse 35, the breaking of bread, which in Luke's vocabulary is the term, you see this in the book of Acts especially, for the Lord's Supper. So Augustine and Calvin both thought that this meal in Luke 24 is being presented in this way as a sort of mirror of the Lord's Supper to evoke for us the thought of that meal, which would itself become a staple of Christian worship. Intriguingly, as he breaks bread with them, that it says their eyes are opened. It said in verse 31, and then they, they say again in verse 35, that he was known to them, in the breaking of bread. One of the things that we see from this, especially in the way that Luke presents this to us in the language of the Lord's Supper, is that Christ is made known to us not only by the means of the word, but also in the Supper. The Belgian Confession says that because our good God is mindful of our crudeness and weakness... He has ordained sacraments for us to seal his promises in us, to pledge his goodwill and grace toward us, and to nourish and sustain our faith because of the weakness and crudeness of our faith. Because, as you and I both well know, our hearts are prone to wander. Our our faith is prone to falter. We're prone to doubt. So for that reason, he gives us signs, he gives us seals, he gives us sacraments in his goodness. As we see also in Luke 24, the risen Christ in his goodness, mindful of the crudeness and weakness of the faith of these two faltering disciples, he sits them down at table and dines with them. And in the breaking of bread, he makes himself known to them. The meal of which they partook, it, it confirmed to them the gospel message. It's interesting. It's, it's immediately after he vanishes that, that the meal of which they just partook brings them back immediately to consider what they heard in the word. It says, uh, that, that didn't our hearts burn within us as we heard him expositing the word? So the meal of which they, they partook, it, it confirms to them the gospel message as we confess in question 65 makes them understand more clearly that the promise of the gospel, that's what we confess in question 66, and it focuses their faith on the one sacrifice of Christ to the cross is the only ground of their salvation. This is what the sacraments do. They confirm our weak and wandering hearts of the truth that the word of the gospel proclaims to us. Some of you might have, have read before Jack Miller's um, book, Come Back, Barbara, where he uh, chronicles he and his wife's struggles with a wayward daughter. It's a, a part of the book where he describes a, a trip that he and his wife took to Europe. I think it was Switzerland, where he was, he was speaking at a conference right in the middle of, of all these difficult things going on in their family. Uh, speaking about adoption and uh, sonship and all of these glorious gospel truths all week. But his wife, as she was there with him, she uh, simply said to him, these, these messages I don't mean a thing to me. She was so overwhelmed by the, the things that she was experiencing in their family. But then that Sunday, as he was, was preaching again about the joys of sonship and then administered the supper, his wife says that it was in that moment of, of hearing this, this large loaf of French bread crack that, that her eyes were opened and, and she saw Christ's body broken for her anew which spoke to her in the midst of her trial, in the midst of her sadness. Christ was made known to her in the breaking of bread. Someone once said, you you will never get a better Christ in the supper than you will in the sermon, but you might get Christ better. That's what that dear sister came to understand. It seems to be something of what's happening in Luke 24 where God confirms the word of the gospel through the powerful yet ordinary means of the breaking of bread. Notice again how in that breaking of bread, Christ is central. He is the one who is the host at the meal, even though he originally had been the guest, now he is presiding over it. He is the one who, who takes and blesses and breaks and gives, and it's him who is made known to them in the meal. He is both host and subject. And so it is also for us. He's the one who invites us to dine with him. He's the one whose body we eat, whose blood we drink, whose death is the subject of and whose life is the substance of this sacred meal. We feed on him. This meal is not about us, it's about him. Question 67, both word and sacrament are meant to focus our faith on Jesus. Herman Veldkamp says both point with outstretched finger to Calvary, to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross as the only ground for our salvation. Meaning that the supper doesn't point inward toward us and how worthy we are to come and partake, it doesn't point inward to us and how, how much guilt we can muster up to, to feel about our sin. But it takes our eyes off of ourselves and onto God's Son. And the same is true not only of the table, but also of the font. Baptism is not first and foremost about me and and my public declaration. It's not about what I'm saying, it's about what He's saying. And the gospel word that He confirms by that act. The sacraments are about Christ, the sacraments are about the gospel. And we need them because of the weakness of our faith. That's what we see in Luke 24. So we confess in the Belgic Confession that we need both word and sacrament for the nourishing and refreshing of our souls in this meal of the new creation. In fact, I think that point is made in the way that Luke presents this meal according to the pattern of another meal in the Bible. In fact, the very first meal in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. We're there in, in Eden, just as here in Luke 24, two individuals are there offered food, which they, they accept, even though they don't recognize the one who gives it to them. When they eat, it says their eyes were opened and they knew. These are the parallels between this meal and, and that meal. But in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve took the food and, and they ate and their eyes were opened and they knew, it was a knowledge of their sin that they came to know, the knowledge of, of the judgment and curse that loomed. But here in Luke 24, the eyes of these two disciples are opened in a way that sounds much like Genesis 3, it's, it's signaling a reversal of what that first meal caused. That's how Dane Ortland puts it. He says that the first eye opening at that first meal, with its, its attendant knowledge, ushered humanity into a new moral universe of darkness, exile, sin, and death. But this second eye opening, with its attendant knowledge, pulled back the eschatological curtain to allow Jesus' distraught disciples to perceive that he himself had inaugurated the long-awaited new world of hope, resurrection, restoration, and new creation. This this first meal of the new age is the countermeal to that first meal of the old age, signaling that in Christ the new creation has invaded this present age, has come to undo what Adam uh, lost in the fall which fits with this Luke 24 theme of Christ as the, the fulfillment and completion of the Old Testament. Christ is a last Adam. But here's what's interesting. If Luke is, is presenting this meal, and I think it's clear that he is, not only as, as the, the counter meal to that first meal in the garden, signaling the invasion of, of the new creation into the present, but if Luke is also presenting this meal in the language of the Lord's Supper, I think what that suggests is that the Lord's Supper is itself a, a sacrament of the age to come. It is the meal of the new creation invading this present order so that, as, as Robert Latham has said, the Lord's Supper and the Lamb's Supper are but two sides of the same reality. It is a, a foretaste, even a taste of the messianic banquet given to us as a token of the promise of the gospel. It is a means of grace where the ascended Christ lifts our souls up to feed on the life giving power of his incarnate heavenly body to strengthen us on our pilgrim way. This, by the way, is why Calvin thought we should partake of it often. It's why the, the early church in Luke chapter 2 devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread because we need both word and sacrament. Christ himself makes himself known in in both, working faith in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel and confirming it by the use of the sacraments, both of which point us to Christ. So as you think for a bit about what this means for the the shape of the church's ministry and and how we respond to these means of grace, I'll give just a couple basic points. Um, One it means the church of Jesus Christ must devote herself to these means. In Acts 2, verse 42, also written by Luke, he says the church devoted itself to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread, along with the prayers and, and the fellowship. These are the things that they devote themselves to. The Christ centered word and Christ centered sacraments. They were doing these things not infrequently. But the ministry of the church is to have its orbit around word and sacrament. The Christ-centered word and Christ-centered sacraments which confirm us in the gospel week after week. So the church must wrestle with what it means to devote herself to these things. And then second, the church must resist the temptation to look to anything else. Programs, Music, personality of the preacher is that which gives power to its ministry. The power is in the word, with the preached word and the visible word. One commentator makes this this point about the the, the flow of Luke's gospel, how it concludes here with this, and and says, the teaching together with the breaking of bread formed the, the climax right here at the end of the gospel so it is with the ministry of the church the high point of what we do in our evangelism our discipleship our worship is in the preaching of the word and the breaking of breath do we believe that or are we bored with these same ordinary means does the thought of of something like more frequent uh, communion make you uh, think that that would be dull or boring or do you do you find the kind of preaching that Jesus Himself gives here in Luke twenty four boring? Does our preaching really need to, to have such focus on Christ? Question sixty-seven would say unequivocally, yes. Because what this kind of preaching does is it causes us to behold Christ's unveiled face, Lord's day after Lord's day, beholding his glory, that from one degree of glory to the next, we might be transformed into his same likeness. That's what Second Corinthians 3.18 says happens as we behold him, which we do through word and sacrament, these means of grace that he's appointed. And so in devoting ourselves to them and beholding his glory and his grace, Paul says we are through that made like him. Our hearts are made to love him. As we gaze upon his face and by the expulsive power of a new and greater affection, our hearts are put out of taste for those sins that so easily entangle us. That's the object of preaching. That's the object of worship, to make you behold Christ and be made like him. Not necessarily to to give you a, a list of all the things you need to go home and do. Not necessarily to make you write down as much information as you can about the passage, but to make you see and behold Christ. To lead you to a worshipful encounter with him. To be so caught up in the glory of Christ that you are worshiping as you're listening. And that like these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, your hearts would burn within you. You'd be filled with joy and then compelled like them to go and tell others. This is what Lord's Day 25 and Luke 24 mean for, for the shape of the church's ministry and our response to it. It is a Christ-centered ministry of word and sacrament that we devote ourselves to in joy. Not looking to other things or other means, but to these ordinary means by which Christ promises to do extraordinary things as he reveals himself to us week after week, slowly but surely, and in so doing, transforms us into his same likeness. May that be our prayer as we devote ourselves to these means. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this glorious, illuminating account of Christ himself preaching to his people about how all of scripture points to him. And then not only of Christ preaching to his people, but also of Christ dining with his people, making himself known in the breaking of bread. May this set the pattern for all Christian worship. As Christ himself comes to us in the preaching of the word, the breaking of bread, may our hearts burn within us. May his presence with us at the table and in the preaching make every meeting place like Emmaus. Would you strengthen our hearts and confirm us in the gospel as we devote ourselves to these ordinary means? Would we confess that it is um, the Holy Spirit who, who works this faith in, in our hearts uh, by these means? And so we pray that your spirit would even uh, bless the, the means which we have uh, received today make our hearts burn within us. It would make us to see and behold the glory of your Son, so that even as we have beheld him this day in word and sacrament, we would increasingly be made more like him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.